I'm Jaina, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, and this first segment of the Nerdstorian's Guide to Modern Games. I'm here to wade through the boring parts of history, bringing you the interesting stories of today's modern games. Thank you so much for tuning in to my first regular episode as part of the dojo, where we'll be diving into the history of trick-taking games. But to start, I actually have a confession to make. When I say board game, I'm really referring to any game, whether it comes with a board, you create the board throughout the game by laying down tiles, or there's only cards and no board at all. But what I've learned in researching this episode is that that is not how most history books define a board game. Apparently, to be included in the Oxford history of board games, the game needs to have an actual board. Kind of rude and exclusive if you ask me, but clearly no one did. Uh, So why does this matter? I imagine that you're wondering this right now as you're getting ready to skip to the next episode. Well, I pride myself on going to the best leading published and well-researched source for my information wherever possible. I mean, obviously, if something's on the internet, it has to be true. We all know that. But I like to be able to confirm with the printed word or online published journal article, as the case may be, just because I'm weird like that. And I need to confess that I was not able to do that for this episode. Why? Well, because I didn't realize that there's an Oxford History of Card Games, which is an entirely different book than the Oxford History of Board Games. Again, I say that feels kind of rude and exclusive, and you think I might have caught on to that when I haven't seen any hint of a card game in the History of Board Games book, but I'm not that bright, you see. So, all this to say, I don't actually have any books on the history of card games, and I wasn't able to order any in time to research and record this episode, so I had to turn to the World Wide Web and trust those that reference the books in their writings. Honestly, these online sources probably did a much better job than I would have, so I don't expect any major errors to pop up, but maybe we'll just keep this little mess up to ourselves. I'm already on thin ice with Eric after confessing I don't like Orléans, and I don't need to melt that ice any further. And as always, I will provide links to all my resources in the show notes so you can always check them out for yourself. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into trick-taking. To start, what exactly is a trick-taking game? Simply put, trick-taking is a game mechanism where in each round, often called a trick, every player will play one card face up into the play area, and once everyone has contributed a card, whoever played the highest card wins that trick. Super simple, right? Of course, that is an incredibly broad definition, which doesn't even come close to capturing the multiple nuances and variations across all the different trick-taking games that we see today. So let's dive a bit deeper into some more mechanisms and styles of trick-taking games. Trick-taking is a genre that really has its own language, much like other modern game parlance, Once you understand what all the definitions mean, most trick-taking games are pretty easy to explain. But if you're brand new to the genre, then sitting down to a supposedly relaxing game of hearts would be much like walking into a hostage negotiation, where all the other participants are speaking in a foreign language. So if everyone could take their seats and get settled, we'll start with a quick trick-taking language crash course so we're all on the same page. If you're already familiar with trick-taking mechanisms, feel free to skip ahead to around the 8 minute 45 second mark, where we'll take a look at the earliest trick-taking games. The first thing that's common to most trick-taking games is leading a trick and following suit. Whoever plays the first card of the trick is leading that trick, and, generally speaking, they can play whichever card from their hand that they want. 
Once that lead card's been played, though, in many trick-taking games, the rest of the players must play whatever suit was led if they can, which is called following suit. For example, if I lead a trick with a 10 of diamonds, and you're the next player and have one card in your hand that is a diamond, you must play that card that's a diamond. If you have multiple diamonds in your hand, you can generally choose which one you want to play. If you don't have any diamonds, then you can generally play any card that you want from your hand. Then, regardless of whether you followed suit or not, the next person must play a diamond if they're able to, and so on until everyone has played one card. Okay, so that's straightforward enough, but now that everyone's played a card, how do we know who won the trick? You'd think this would be pretty simple, but there can be a couple of wrinkles. Generally speaking, the highest card of the suit that was led would win the trick. So, remembering that I led with a 10 of diamonds, let's say the next person played an 8 of diamonds, the next card was a 5 of spades, and the last card played was a 2 of clubs. So, since I led diamonds and my 10 was the highest diamond played that round, I win the trick, right? Well, maybe, but it often depends on which suit is the trump suit. In many trick-taking games, there will be a trump suit, and... As the name implies, that suit trumps all. How trump is determined can vary, but let's say for this hand that we just played, clubs are trump. So I led with the 10 of diamonds, then there's an eight of diamonds, a five of spades, and two of clubs. And clubs are trump? So who won? Yeah, not me, the chump who played a relatively high diamond, but instead it was the person who played a two of clubs. Winning a trick like this with a trump card is often referred to as trumping the trick. Generally speaking, whoever won the trick will collect the cards from that trick and keep them in a pile face down in front of them to help track how many tricks each person has won. And why face down? Well, a big part of a lot of trick-taking games is keeping track of which cards have been played and what might be left so you can manipulate things to try and win, or lose, the tricks that you need to. Okay, so you have a general idea of how a trick would be played, but what's the point of all this? Ah, I'm glad you brought up points. Because getting points is often the point of trick-taking games. But, of course, how you score them will vary quite a bit depending on which game is being played. There's a few common ways of scoring points, though. First, we have plain trick games where you get points by winning the most tricks or sometimes a specific number of tricks. Some common examples of these include Bridge, Euchre, Spades, and Wizard, which is also known as Oh Hell or Oh Shit. There are also point trick games where you're trying to win specific cards during the round. These include games such as Scat and Pinocle. Lastly, there are trick avoidance games like Hearts or Scat, where you're trying to avoid winning certain cards. And of course, you'll notice that there's overlap within these, where some games might fit into more than one of these categories, just like most other board games out there. Okay, I promise we're almost done with the crash course. Feel free to get up, take a movement break if you need to wake your brain up for this last little bit. I'll wait. Everyone back? Great. Let's talk about partners. But don't worry if you don't have a partner. If you get into trick-taking games, you'll likely end up with one. Not necessarily a life partner, more a partner that you cooperate with during the game. Although, now that I think about it, maybe I should start a dating company based around matching people up with trick-taking partners. Give me a minute, just gonna jot that down in my ideas book. Okay, back. 
One of the common things that you'll find in a lot of trick-taking games is that you'll often be playing with a partner. This means that you and your partner score points and win or lose together, and while you're playing a hand, you're doing your best to help each other out and screw over the other partnership that you're playing against. But, of course, the catch is that, generally speaking, you can't talk to each other about what cards you have in your hands. And I think this is one of the reasons that so many trick-taking games have persisted. Many trick-taking games don't have complicated rules, but learning to communicate just through how you play your cards or through bidding for trumps and tricks in a game like Bridge can easily consume a lifetime. In a 52-card deck, the number of possible combinations in which those cards can be dealt out is so high that I cannot even comprehend it. I, I don't even know what the term for the number is, or if there even is one. So I'll just say that it's eight with 67 zeros after it. 67 zeros. So you can almost guarantee that no matter which game you're playing with a standard deck of cards, it's incredibly unlikely that you'll ever play the exact same hand twice. Okay, now that everyone has a basic understanding of what a trick-taking game is, let's talk about where trick-taking games started. First off, why are they even called trick-taking games? What even is a trick? Well, it turns out that question isn't as easy to answer as one might think. My initial search led me to a Reddit post with the exact same question, answered by Dan Thoreau, maybe more commonly recognized for his Space Biff reviews. And of course, there is a long and a short version. I'll stick with the medium length version, which is that the word trick, when used in the context of card games, most likely came from the Latin word tricare, the meaning of which refers to both subterfuge and or implied cheating, as well as referring to trifles and toys. Well, why the implication of subterfuge and cheating? Because, of course, back in the day when card games were becoming popularized, card play was seen as a gambling vice. Thus, the word tricare, with its tricky connotations, was a perfect fit. And why is it thought that this word was the likely origin? Because many European cultures consistently used the word trick to describe a hand of cards, which supports a Latin origin, Latin being the common root for all those European languages. But, of course, there's more history to it. The earliest written reference to the word trick in context of a card game suggests that it was in use by the 17th century as quoted from the Academy of Armory by Randall Holm, originally published in 1688 and stating, a trick is as many cards as is one at one laying down either at the game of whisk or picket. The same source suggests that a trick just referred to a hand of cards, and the more specific use may have developed as time progressed. Another great quote suggesting that at this time, trick referred to a hand of cards comes from the Fair Maid of the Exchange, most commonly attributed to Thomas Haywood. It goes, Many a deal I how lost, the more's your shame. You how serued me a bad trick. Ugh, and I thought Shakespeare was hard to grok. And just a reminder, I most definitely do not have these original sources and I'm finding these quotes on the interwebs. So, well, don't quote me on these. Okay, to round up our etymology tour, there are also more recent sayings from the 19th century, such as to do the trick or to miss a trick, which, while used in common parlance, have also been attributed to use while playing whist, which we'll soon see as one of the earlier trick-taking games. Lastly, if you love languages, check out the show notes for a link to an interesting discussion over on BoardGameGeek on the various words for trick in different languages. 
Okay, enough etymology. Let's get on to the games. To help sift through all the possible historic trick-taking games out there, I found this amazing infographic on 3cardpoker.com, which is of course linked in the show notes. It has infographics for the history of all sorts of different types of card games, and I would highly suggest taking a look at it if you're interested in card games in general. That said, while I did my best to cross-reference the dates and origins of games provided in that infographic that I'll be discussing, I did heavily rely on it for a starting point and am somewhat at the mercy of its accuracy, or potentially lack thereof. If you hear something that you know is wrong, please reach out with your source and I will happily provide any corrections as needed. Okay, on with the games. I won't talk much about the history of playing cards, as I think that deserves its own full episode, but A Brief History has the earliest cards and card games most likely originating in China in the 1300s. I mean, really, what didn't originate in China? And from there, they spread via trade routes to India, Persia, Arabia, and Egypt. By the mid-1300s, cards had reached Europe, most likely via Mediterranean trade routes through Egypt. Then, of course, we have lots of changes to suits and face cards throughout the next century until we end up with our modern iteration developed in France in the late 1440s. Okay, so 13 minutes in, and I'm finally about to talk about an actual game. The first recorded, most definitely a trick-taking game, is called Carnoffel, which I most definitely just mispronounced. Carnoffel was most likely developed in the 1420s in Germany, or, well, in German-speaking regions. The exact rules have unfortunately not survived, but it was the precursor to multiple games from Switzerland, Iceland, and Greenland that are still played today. It was most likely played with a 48-card German deck with a chosen suit, a likely precursor to the trump suit of today. On a quick review of the likely surviving rules, I have absolutely no idea what's supposed to be going on, so trick-taking games clearly have come a long way since then. But it was most likely played by four people in teams of two, much like many modern trick-taking games. Ooh, fun fact! In medieval times, carnoffel was the word to describe an inguinal hernia, which, depending on how you feel about trick-taking games, might be pretty accurate. Okay, next up. Trump cards were most likely introduced via tarot decks around 1440 in Italy. Originally called Triomphi, these cards created a fifth distinct suit that always trumped the standard suits and had their own hierarchy. This is what evolved into the tarot decks of today. From this start came the idea of a trump suit, with Triumph being the game that first introduced assigning one of the four standard suits as trump, in this case, randomly. And I gotta say, from here things get pretty convoluted. There are four games at the top of the trick-taking pyramid that were all developed in the early 1500s, and it seems that most future trick-taking games derive from some combination of these. The first is Trapola, which hails from Italy and uses Italian-suited cards, which differ from the standard French deck that we're used to today and used in most other games that I'll mention. I do have to say, though, the Italian cards have a fair amount of nostalgia for me as I grew up playing a lot of La Beast, a repackaged version of a Madrasso variant, which, honestly, I've never even heard of Madrasso until now. I just have a lot of fond memories of spending hours playing La Beast at holidays. Okay, next up we have Ma, which is the OG version of Ireland's national card game 25. 
The basis of Ma is that each round there will be five tricks played and your goal is to either win three of those tricks or stop the other players from winning three tricks. Another fun fact, the Irish word for trick, which I am not going to try to pronounce, is actually the word for five. Coincidence? I bet not. Ma also shares some similarities with ombre. Ooh, yeah, I can't pronounce that either. Uh, which was developed in Spain around the same time. And those seem to be the four founding fathers of the trick-taking genre. Triumph, Trapola, Ma, and Ombre. From there, a few games stand out as we race through to modern times. We have Rough and Honours from England, which was a precursor to Whist. Piquette, which uses a 32-card deck, and which you can easily find the rules to if you want to give it a try. In fact, if you want to try many of the card games I've mentioned so far, check out the show notes for a link to the historic card games website created by David Parlett, the author of the Oxford History of Card Games, which is the book I most wanted to get my hands on for this episode. His site has clear and concise rules to a lot of the games I'm talking about, along with some more historical context. Piquette looks to have links to Hearts, which, for my fellow millennials, is probably recognizable as a game that came preloaded on the computers of the day, and which I definitely whiled away multiple hours playing while not entirely understanding all of the rules. And that brings us up to Whist, which really forms the basis for a lot of the trick-taking games that we see today. The Treaties on Whist, first edition, was published in 1742 and authored by Edmund Hoyle, a name that comes up quite a lot in my research as he wrote a lot of books with game rules. It looks like Whist likely has its origins in Triumph and Ma, and has spawned so many variants I don't even want to count them. If you remember back to my explanation of standard trick-taking rules, you basically have the rules for Whist. You just need to learn how scoring works. It also has quite strong ties to Bridge, one of the most played trick-taking games. Well, at least if you've ever listened in on my family gatherings. Then we have Pitch, which brought trick-taking to America. Pitch, or High-Low Jack, is the American name for a game derived from all fours, which originated in England. It is still played all across America with many regional variants. It also is likely the most direct precursor to Euchre, another trick-taking game that is still very popular today. Other modern hits that you've probably heard of, and by modern I'm talking mid-1800s to earlier mid-1950s, include Pinocchio, Hearts, Bridge and its many variants, and spades. Okay, we made it. But before I dive into the modern trick takers of today, I should mention the trick taking variations most often seen in East Asia. You'll notice that most of the games I've talked about so far originated in Europe, and, well, that's probably because a lot of game media that is written in English will focus on those places. But trick-taking games did get their start in China and are still going very strong there, especially in Japan, as most listeners are probably pretty familiar with. In China, though, a trick-taking variation has developed called climbing or card-shedding games. In these games, instead of a trick being one single round with each person playing one card, in a climbing or shedding game, a trick could end up going multiple rounds or be won before everyone even has a chance to play into it. A super popular game right now that comes to mind for me in this category is Scout, recently republished by Oint Games and enjoying pretty wide availability in that form. In Scout, one player starts the round by playing down either a card or a set of cards, 
which could be a run or cards with the same value. The next player then has to beat the cards that the previous player put down in order to play. You'll be earning points over the course of the game, but you really want to be the first person out, meaning that you're the first person to play down all your cards. Everyone else will then take negative points based on the cards left in their hand. Of course, there's a lot more going on in Scout, but that gives a general idea of the variation of trick-taking that's often seen in Asia. My partner actually grew up in Hong Kong, and I remember her teaching me a few of the games she commonly played in school, and they were all variations of this style of trick-taking. They're often called ladder climbing or shedding games, as the goal is generally to get rid of your cards first, and you usually do that by playing down a better set of cards than the person before you. And now, it is finally time to dive into some more modern games. If you look at the number of games listed under the mechanism trick-taking on BoardGameGeek, I have to agree with people who say that we're in a modern trick-taking renaissance. I always like to browse through the games there in chronological order for whichever mechanism I'm talking about in an episode, and my finger got tired clicking through all the trick-takers listed in the last couple of years. And while there have been quite a few more modern trick-taking games that keep coming up over and over again, Wizard, Tichu, and Skull King come to mind for me, I'm going to argue that the modern renaissance started with Fox in the Forest, followed closely by The Crew, Quest for Planet Nine. The Fox in the Forest stands out to me as the first two-player trick-taking game that I'd ever heard of. I mean, I'm sure there are others, but Fox in the Forest seems to have taken the gaming community by storm, currently ranked 565 on BoardGameGeek, which isn't bad for what seems like could have been a very niche game. Fox in the Forest is similar to many standard trick-taking games, with points being won by winning more tricks in a round than your opponent. Don't get too greedy, though, as you'll be punished for winning too many tricks. It also introduces powers, with some cards allowing you to lead the next trick even if you lost, or, you know, letting you switch the trump suit. It's fairly straightforward, streamlined, and beautiful, and offers a great experience for two players. Coming out in the same year as Fox in the Forest is Claim, another two-player trick-taker. But having tried to teach it to my mom, who is very familiar with trick-taking games, it doesn't have quite the same inviting feel that Fox in the Forest does. My mom could not wrap her head around the different powers of each suit and the two-phase game system, where in the first half of the game you're building up your hand of cards for the second half, in which you're then trying to win the majority of cards of the different suits or types of creatures. For me, Fox in the Forest is the clear winner for introducing many people to the genre and making trick-taking work in a new way while keeping the same feel. Next up, we have The Crew Quest for Planet Nine. Of all the recent trick-taking games, I am confident that this is the one that has introduced the genre to more people than any other game. And how does it do that, you ask? By turning trick-taking into a cooperative experience. There are a few cooperative trick-taking games listed on BoardGameGeek published earlier than The Crew, but to be frank, I haven't heard of a single one of them. The crew took trick-taking and made it into such a clever and smooth system of cooperation in a way that feels like it has no right to work as well as it does. In the crew, you're playing through a series of missions which increase in difficulty. The missions vary, but often will involve a certain player or players having to win specific cards or win a trick by playing a specific card, etc. Sure, it's presented like a campaign game, but you can just dive into whichever mission you want, and you certainly don't have to play through them all with the same group of people. The trick-taking follows very standard, must-follow rules, 
with the winner of the previous trick leading the next, and with four regular suits and one trump suit, consisting of four cards of values one through four. The new version, the crew, Mission Deep Sea, adds in even more replayability by having each level's mission or missions randomly generated from a big deck of mission cards, each corresponding to a different difficulty level. Each mission that you're doing will tell you the total difficulty value for that mission, and you randomly draw cards from the mission deck until you have the exact total, with the values changing depending on your player count. So, even if you play through all the missions again, not only will your hand of cards be different, so will the missions that you're trying to achieve. I strongly believe that the crew is most responsible for bringing so many people into the trick-taking genre for the simple reason of it being a cooperative game. One of the hardest things with introducing someone to trick-taking is that they're most often going to be taught a game by someone who is incredibly familiar with that game, as trick-taking games are so often games that people play throughout their lives growing up. And while the rules are generally fairly simple on the surface, the implications and strategy can be rather opaque, generally leading to the new player having no hope in winning against experienced players, or even worse, feeling like they're letting down a teammate. With the crew, the implications and strategy is slowly explored through the various missions, and while some people will feel the pressure of not wanting to fail the team, at least everyone is on the same team, and eventually you'll discover that failure is inevitable at some point, and that even experienced players will probably be learning a thing or two about how to manipulate the cards to get certain things accomplished. Along those lines, while the rules state that there is to be no verbal communication while playing, you can of course adjust this however you like, and even provide running commentary as you play the first few hands to help ensure new players understand the rules and how things are playing out without fear of compromising the game. Oh, and the crew, Mission Deep Sea, is currently ranked 36 overall on BoardGameGeek, which easily makes it the highest rated trick-taking game over there. No matter what you think of the ranking system, that's a pretty incredible achievement for a game with such ancient origins. And, well, from there, the trick-taking genre exploded. There are so many developments that I won't even begin to scratch the surface, but I'll call out a few of the games that have stood out to me. In no particular order, we have For Northwood, which turns trick-taking into a solo experience. Next is Cat in the Box, which asks you to decide what suit the card you just played belongs to. Better be careful not to create a paradox with those. Shamans and Inside Job pose the question of what if trick-taking, but with hidden roles or a hidden traitor. Or Nikosu Dice, which is, unsurprisingly, trick-taking with dice. Then, of course, you have board games incorporating trick-taking as a major mechanism, like Brian Boru, High King of Ireland, and the soon-to-be-released ARCS, which is a short campaign game based around trick-taking and themed as a space opera. I could go on. Seriously. I, I could really keep going all day. I am so confident that the majority of people listening right now are yelling out their favorite trick-taking game, which I probably, unfortunately, won't have even mentioned. But for now, I'll have to leave you to discover some new favorites on your own, or with the help of listening back to previous Board Game Dojo episodes, especially episode 22, where Eric chats with Taiki Shinzawa, trick-taking game design whiz. Or listen forward to new episodes, which I'm sure will be featuring many more trick-takers. 
For those who are lucky enough to snag one of the surprise boxes from travelgames.co.uk direct from the Tokyo Games Market, I know there have been a lot of very cool Japanese trick takers that made their way into them. And I have been having a great time perusing everyone's photos as they open up their boxes. Feel free to join us over on the Discord channel, link in the show notes, of course, where you'll find lots of friendly people to chat games with and even a channel dedicated to trick-taking games. I hope you enjoyed this inaugural episode of the new Nerdstorian's Guide to Modern Board Game series, and I look forward to popping back in your ear holes next month. Have a topic that you want me to cover? Let me know over on our Discord. I would love to hear your suggestions. Until next time, bye! Bye!